0: You're listening to Strange New England. I'm Tom Burby, your host. Darkness has fallen over the September night as the half moon rises and the stars begin to fill the sky over Penobscot Bay. Sometimes, The night falls so deeply here, in this main hamlet, that it seems like the sun might never rise again. It is a darkness full of potential. The year is 1898, and you are walking along a dark path in the small coastal town of Bucksport. You're alone, quite alone. You're sure of it. In the distance, You can see the vague outline of ships in the harbor and lights in the windows of the townspeople and the houses you know so well, for you are the worker, the cleaner, the hired servant, willing to scrub and polish and watch the children and shine the possession of others to make your living. These people could be your friends, but that is not necessarily the case, is it? For you are, and forever will be, from away. These people aren't your people, and you're not one of them, but as you walk carefully along the lane you remember your home in Nova Scotia, and sometimes you wonder what it would have been like had you never met the man from Bucksport that you wed, and you moved from your home to his, to this place, and had his children, and toiled away the years. And then, when the children were grown, you divorced. And though you tried to go back to Nova Scotia, you found that you didn't belong there anymore. So where is home, you wonder, as you walk down the dark path on the cool September night? Ah, but those thoughts are fleeting at best. No time for regret, you tell yourself, when there's work to do. This is your home now. This is where you're safe. As you move forward down the lane, you put your hand on your purse and recall the payments you've just collected. You had nothing when you came here, but with hard work and tenacity you needled your way into the homes and lives of the people. It's been grind and scrape, working all hours, but you are, even without your husband, independent. And after all, though your children have grown, you still have to support yourself, and you know that you'll never be included or cared for like the others, that you'll always be regarded as a stranger in your own way, no matter how long you live among them. You may live here, you may walk with them, but they don't ever take you in, do they? Still, there is recompense, and then you remember that you have One more stop to make before you can head home. It's the stove maker, the tin knocker, the man you worked for for years, took care of his children. He still owes you payment. One last stop before bed. You reach into your purse and remove the cigarillo you just purchased less than fifteen minutes ago, the final purchase at the little store on the edge of town before they closed for the night and blew out their lanterns. They've seen you before at this late hour, making your rounds at the only time you can, because when tomorrow comes you'll be back to work again, cleaning their houses, tending to the smallest of their needs. The wind begins to blow as you light the match and inhale. It is a small pleasure, but to walk alone, to be independent, to be in charge of your life with a purse full of small change, ah, that's freedom. Your name is Sarah Ware, and soon, very soon, something quite terrible will happen. In 1898, Maine had less than a million inhabitants, and the only cities were small in comparison with the neighboring states, and even today it's a place of long distances, of varied customs and terrain. Before the turn of the century, the coastal towns and villages featured harbors full of ships that sailed to every corner of the globe, and captains and crews who had been a part of the bedrock of their communities for time out of mind. In 1898, everyone knows everyone else, and everyone seems to know everyone else's business, too. Even the smallest newsworthy morsel of information could become the topic of hot conversation, and it's passed by word of mouth from one householder to another with great alacrity. It doesn't take long for the disappearance of Sarah Ware to become the subject on everyone's lips. No one has seen her since the storeholders sold her that cigarello before closing. Then, as now, people did disappear. They moved on. They took to the road without telling anyone of their passing. Even today that kind of disappearance might not seem unusual except that, well, people know her so well that she's part of their lives and she's been there for years. I mean, surely someone must know something about where she went. For now, 59-year-old Sarah Ware is one of the missing. For two weeks, search parties scour the countryside. The nights are growing colder as the trees begin to change to the colors of autumn and then fall. After nearly two weeks of searching, no one has yet found hide nor hair of Sarah Ware. The good people who used her as their housekeeper make other arrangements. But what had been a local, albeit strange, disappearance would soon make the front page of papers from Portland to Boston. It was the odor of death that eventually brought the searchers to her body. Not a mile from her own home, just off Miles Lane near the current high school parking lot, a path she'd trod daily for years, she's found. a raincoat tucked up like a pillow underneath her nearly severed head. Indeed, searchers aren't completely sure it's her at all due to the fact that her face is gone, eaten away by some wild animal. Her purse is found nearby as well as a knife with a ragged, serrated edge obviously used upon her. The grisly state of the corpse tells the story of a violent crime, a murder so repugnant and so unusual that no one in this area could recall anything happening like that to match such an extreme, ferocious nature. Her body is carefully placed in a wagon to be transported back to town, but the brutal nature of the crime was such that during the bumpy ride back, her head detaches from her body and when her skull is examined, a round hole in her forehead reveals the probable cause of death, a blow from a blunt object so strong that it penetrates her cranium. One thing is clear to investigators. Someone among them had committed a horrid act of bloody murder, ripe pickings for the tabloids and sensationalist newspapers of the time. Precisely who had done such a thing becomes the front page news and source of the talk of the town for the days and the weeks to come. All of New England read the papers each morning for further developments into the case. Detectives were few and far between in the state of Maine at the turn of the century. The local constabulary was poorly equipped to solve such a case, so they sent for help. First, A seasoned detective from the city of Lewiston, 100 miles away, began his investigation, soon joined by another detective from the nearby river city of Bangor. These two men, also from away, were the ones with the power to uncover the identity of the murderer and solve this most heinous of crimes. Sarah Ware had taken up residence with an older woman whom she cared for, Mrs. Miles she informed the investigators that Sarah often took her night constitutional to collect the money that people owed her for the work she'd done during the week and the month before. Sarah Ware was known for her hard work and enterprise. Being alone in the world except for her children, she had to have a hard, scrabble existence just to make ends meet. And at times, she might have had to wait for payment from the men she worked for, or worse, not collect any payment at all. But... She was a worker, people knew it, she had a reputation. The money she had been collecting, however, was nowhere to be found. Perhaps this was the motive for murder. Word spread concerning the progress of the case, leading newspaper readers to speculate that someone in town owed Sarah Ware money, and all they needed to do was to find out who. Strangely enough, after another thorough search of the area and her house, the money that she had supposedly been carrying that night and had been missing when they examined her body, had mysteriously found its way back into her trunk in her room at the Miles' house. Soon enough, a bloody tarp was found in William Trewergy's wagon, and within it was a hammer with the initials WTT engraved upon it. The round peg of the hammer seemed to match the round hole in Sarah's skull. Of course, Trewergy denied any knowledge of the crime. He was a divorced father whose wife had left him with two young daughters to raise on his own. Sarah Ware had worked for him for some time, but they had parted not on friendly terms, and he still owed her money, which he refused to pay. He was known for his quick temper. Word spread that he didn't paid her, and he owed her. His house would have been the final stop on her usual route before heading home on what was the fateful night, and he knew Sarah, so in fact, it was understood in the town that Triwurji was a hard-working man, but a man hard to work for, and that when she left, Triwurji refused to pay her what she was owed. Had Sarah Ware stopped, at the Trewergy house, trying to collect the money owed to her one more time before going back to Mrs. Miles' house that night. In those days, when a town needed the services of an outside detective from another city, they had to pay the expenses. Once Trewergy was implicated in the murder, things began to change, and in a strange way. On November 28th, as the investigation began to pick up steam, the funds paying the two detectives mysteriously dried up overnight, and the case was abandoned. Apparently, though, not everyone in the community was happy with this state of affairs, and a group of concerned citizens raised $500 to pay the detectives to continue their work, and the case against William Treewardy was reopened. But it wasn't until the following spring that a man named Joe Fogg Jr. confessed to accepting payment from William Trewergy in return for disposing the body in the pasture just off Miles Lane. Such a witness was finally enough to bring the case to trial. But this is where the story of the murder of Sarah Ware becomes most confusing. There was a murder weapon. There was motive. Ware cleaned for trilogy and he may have even borrowed money from her and there was a living witness who claimed to have disposed of the body, itself a crime, willing to testify. In today's world this would seem to be more than enough to set the wheels of justice in motion but not apparently in the world of the small towns and villages that comprised rural Maine at the turn of the century. The local courts refused to hear the case, possibly because everyone knew everyone else, and a fair trial seemed unlikely as officials applied to higher courts. Three years into the review process, it landed in the purview of the Hancock County Supreme Court in the city of Ellsworth. The trial went forward, with William Trewergy accused of murdering his former housekeeper. But by July 1902, things started to happen, strange, unlikely things, that seemed to be more than mere coincidences. Many of the people involved in the original investigation four years past had died, including the coroner who examined her corpse and determined the cause of death, and the deputies who took part in the search for her body and discovered the tarp and the hammer. And then Joseph Fogg, the witness who claimed to have helped Treeward to dispose of Sarah's corpse, recanted his testimony, claiming that he had been forced to lie about his role in the case by the selectmen of the town of Buxport and others. With no witnesses, all that remained was the tarp and hammer, except that these had disappeared as well. The only piece of evidence besides the bloody knife that was found next to the body was her skull itself kept inside a sealed box in the Ellsworth Court as evidence. And there it sat, in a locked case, for one hundred years. Her headless body was buried in a pauper's grave. Thirty years later, the entire graveyard was dug up and moved to make way for a new man-made lake, today known as Silver Lake. But since her grave had no marker, it isn't even known if in fact her body was moved at all, or if it lies beneath the waters of Silver Lake, far from any marker. Oak Hill Cemetery in Bucksport does have a marker for Sarah in the Ware family plot, but all that lies there is her head. It rests in the family plot of her in-laws and near the husband she divorced. To the extent that this is still an unsolved murder in the state of Maine, this case remains active, but it's unlikely that Sarah Ware's murder will ever be solved in any official way. What we know about William Trewergy, the loss of the evidence, the bad blood between them, seems very likely that the fellow got away with murder. Some people claim that Sarah Ware can be seen wandering the shores of Silver Lake in the mists of a moonlit night especially if it's a mid-September night. If ever a spirit was restless, waiting for closure and justice, it would be hers. If you happen to drive down that lonely road and see her, stop for a moment and let her be. She's only seeking something that we all thirst for, which may only be found on the other side of the veil. You've been listening to Strange New England, I'm Tom Berby, your host.